Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Hello, Warbirders. If you enjoy the program and it fills at least a part of your day, consider supporting it through the World of Warbirds Patreon. There are some serious advantages from becoming a patron of the podcast, such as getting the episodes a week earlier, there's bonus episodes, and better access for feedback and suggestions. Most importantly, you'll have the satisfaction of helping to contribute to this podcast. If you are presently listening to this through Patreon, well, thank you for your support. Now on to today's show. Introduction Hey, we've talked about a lot of planes by this point. If you're a dedicated fan, you've listened to 50 episodes. And we've covered about 40 aircraft. And usually in this intro, I'm telling you the theme of the episode. It could be that the airplane was a hit from the start and was an instant classic. It could be that the prototype was troubled and required some sort of change and then it was a hit. There were other times when the aircraft was kind of a dog when introduced, but then its role was changed and then it began to shine. Some aircraft can be seen as kind of a transition aircraft. In this time period, changes and advances were so dizzyingly fast that even as production was ramping up for a particular type, the designers were furiously scribbling away on the replacement. So, if this was a multiple-choice test, I'd be looking for D, all of the above. Lastly, before we jump into the story of the Typhoon, let's just appreciate for a moment the awesomeness of the naming of this series of Hawker aircraft. Firstly, there was the beautiful alliteration of the Hawker Hurricane. But then, continuing to name the aircraft after weather phenomena, and storms just lends this feeling of swirling wind and furious power to all of them. Typhoon, tempest, and tornado. Oh, you've never heard of the Hawker Tornado? Well, that one will be a bonus for Patreon subscribers. Okay, this intro needs to be put to bed, and let's get into... Design and Development. So, where to start with this all-of-the-above aircraft? We'll have to start with the Hawker Hurricane because that is where Sidney Cam, Hawker's chief aeronautical engineer, started when thinking about this airplane. If you haven't listened to the Hurricane episode, it would be a good idea to go way back and check it out. Heck, even if you have listened to it, you might need a re-listen as it was episode number three and was released way back at the very start of the pandemic. Well, in 1937, just as production was starting on the Hurricane, Sidney Cam had already began working on the replacement for it. The Hurricane was always going to be a transition aircraft, a kind of hybrid between the older fabric-covered steel tube type construction of the biplanes from the World War I and interwar eras, and the new all-metal birds of World War II. In fact, Cam was so quick on the draw for the new fighter that he was told by the Air Ministry to hold his horses and wait for the actual Air Ministry specification to be released. 
This was Specification F-1837. In July 1938, the Air Ministry did issue this specification, and it was seeking a heavily armed interceptor armed with 12 303 machine guns and capable of at least 400 miles per hour. The new interceptor was to be powered by either the Napier Sabre or the Rolls-Royce Vulture, two newly developed super engines that were to produce 2,000 horsepower. Hawker decided to then create two aircraft, one based on each type of engine. The Rolls-Royce Vulture-powered machine was to be called the Tornado, and the Napier Sabre version was to be the Typhoon. As the aircraft was considered an upgrade to the Hurricane, fabric-covered steel tube construction was out, and the entire aircraft was to be skinned in duralumin. Special care was taken in designing large, easily removed panels for maintenance to the engine, hydraulic, and electrical equipment. Another innovation was the use of a car door-style access to the cockpit, complete with roll-down windows. This same sort of thing was used on the Bell Aerocobra over in the States. The wing was designed with a slight anhedral at the root, then sweeping slightly upwards with a 5-degree dihedral. That reminds me, a short episode on anhedral and dihedral would be a good idea, don't you think? I think I'll put that on the idea sheet. The wing was made very strong, with plans for it to be able to support some serious armament. The wings also contained the fuel, organized into a 40-gallon main tank outside of the main gear bay, and there was also a nose tank in the leading edge of the wing that contained 37 gallons. I always like to compare the fuel capacities of these tanks to my Cessna 172, and my plane's entire fuel capacity is 36 gallons. Now, let's take a look at prototypes. Serial number P5212 was ready for flight in February 1940. There had been delays due to the Napier Sabre, which was a problem child of an engine. And let's look into why. It was to be expected, as Napier was trying to make a pretty vast leap in power output with this engine. Typical big engines at the time produced about 1,200 horsepower, and Napier was aiming for 2,000 horsepower and beyond with this beast. The Sabre was an H-block engine with two banks of 12 horizontally opposed cylinders, one placed above the other and geared to a common output shaft. The Sabre was also a sleeve valve engine that used sliding sleeves instead of poppet valves. These would slide up and down in conjunction with the motion of the cylinder to cover and uncover the ports to affect the firing sequence. It was felt that the sleeve valve system would allow the engine to breathe better, achieve higher RPMs, and thus produce more of that aimed-for power from a smaller package. In testing, the Sabre was earning high marks. In January 1938, experimental sabers on the test bench started at producing 1,350 horsepower. Two months later, they were cranking out 2,050. And by 1939, they were generating a whopping 2,400 horsepower, compared to the Rolls-Royce Merlin of the time, which produced only 1,000 horsepower. It looked like Napier had a winner, 
and the Typhoon would be a beast for it, basically having one engine that was doing the job of two. The problem was that these test engines were, to use modern advertising language, lovingly handmade artisanal products. And when Napier tried to scale this production up to the needs of wartime, well, that's when the poop hit the fan. The sleeve valves were tricky to make, and when regular assembly lines tried to do it, things didn't always work out. And when things didn't work out, cylinders seized and engines failed. But let's get back to the aircraft now. The prototype P-5212 made its first flight in February 1940, piloted by Hawker's chief test pilot, Philip Lucas. In May, he had a bit of a scare when, while flying, the joint between the forward fuselage and the rear fuselage, which was located just behind his seat, failed. He could actually see daylight coming in through the crack. Bailing out would have been a perfectly reasonable and acceptable response to this disconcerting situation, but Lucas decided to stay with the ship and bring it home, even though if the joint had fully failed during the landing, it surely would have meant his death. If you're thinking, geez, they should have given him a medal for that. Well, they did. He was awarded the George Medal, which was given to civilians for acts of great bravery. In May, the Minister of Aircraft Production ordered that resources from other projects needed to be shifted to the urgent production of Spitfire and Hurricane fighters, plus Bomber Command bombers. The Typhoon was shifted to the back burner, and it took a whole year before the second prototype took to the air in May of 41. This one was armed with four Hispano Mark II 20mm cannon with 140 rounds per gun. Finally, the Air Ministry issued a contract to go ahead with production of 250 of the machines. Production Here's the funny thing about the Hawker Typhoon. They weren't made by Hawker. Well, that sounds dramatic, doesn't it? But it's not entirely true. In 1935, Hawker Aircraft bought Armstrong Sidley, which made car and aircraft engines. The resulting company was called Hawker Sidley Aircraft. Hawker Sidley later acquired Avro and Gloucester Aircraft Company, and they were all then to be known as part of the Hawker Sidley Group, although the individual companies all kept their own names and produced their own aircraft designs under these names. However, they shared manufacturing work throughout the group. So at the point where the Typhoon was being readied for production, Hawker, proper, was very busy building Hurricanes, so Avril and Gloucester were tasked with building the new Interceptor. And in May 1940, the first production Typhoon rolled out of the factory and took to the skies. Operational History Alright, so often in this podcast, by the time the aircraft hits the Operational History phase, Things are pretty smooth sailing. I'll give the names of various squadrons that flew the plane, go on to talk about different variants and the new roles given to the type, and then wrap up with the end of the war. And then the sailor kisses the girl in Times Square, and then we go on to survivors. But whoa! This was not exactly the story of the typhoon. 
So you're thinking, wait, is this one of those disaster aircraft that goes into operational use and has problems and they try to fix it and nothing really works and so eventually it gets withdrawn and ends up being used for target practice? That can't be the case. I've heard of typhoons. Didn't they kick butt all over Europe as Allied armies pushed east towards Germany? Well, as I said in the intro, the typhoon is an all-of-the-above type of story. So in August 1941, a new Luftwaffe aircraft had arrived on the scene. In the beginning, the Allied pilots who took it on didn't quite know what they were up against. Some even thought that this new radial-engined fighter might be Curtis P-36 Mohawks that the Luftwaffe had lifted from the French and repainted in their own colors. But this new fighter was no Mohawk. This was the FW-190. It was definitely superior to the Hurricane and even the Spitfire of the time, which was the top RAF machine. The FW-190 had the Spitfire beat in terms of rate of roll and pure straight-line speed at low altitude. The 190, also known as the Butcher Bird, also outgunned the Spitfire in terms of firepower. With the aid of the 190, the Luftwaffe gained air superiority over the Channel Front. Who was afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Well, as it turns out, the RAF was. To answer the threat of the Butcher Bird, the Typhoon was quickly pressed into service with number... 56 and 609 squadrons in September 1941. Literally one month after the first production models were coming out of the factories. That's not a lot of time to work out any issues. And as it turned out, the Typhoon had issues. The first basic problem was that the Typhoon had the unhealthy habit of gassing its pilots. Carbon monoxide gas is the result of incomplete combustion and it was somehow getting into Typhoon cockpits from the big Sabre engine up front. Symptoms of CO poisoning are headache, dizziness, weakness, vomiting, chest pain, confusion, and eventually loss of consciousness, seizure, and death. Not a helpful situation to be in while trying to fly and fight. In November 1941, modifications were introduced to combat the problem by lengthening the exhaust stubs in order to get the poisonous gases away from the aircraft and by better sealing the cockpit door. This helped, but to fully solve the problem, the usual practice for Typhoon pilots was to get on oxygen from engine startup to engine shutdown. In addition to trying to gas its pilots, the pesky typhoons were also trying to roast them. Cockpit temperatures were uncomfortably high, and so again modifications were made to increase ventilation in and out of the cockpit. Maybe these problems wouldn't have been big deals if there had been time to work out the glitches in testing, but it wasn't test pilots discovering them. It was combat pilots trying to fly and fight at the same time as troubleshoot. And these weren't even the worst problems. The Typhoon had the very annoying habit of losing its tail. Initial accidents in the operational units were deemed to be pilot error. But in August 1942, one of Hawker's test pilots, Ken Seth Smith, 
was performing straight and level speed tests, and the aircraft dramatically broke up in flight, killing the pilot. This clearly wasn't pilot error, and Sidney Cam and the team rolled up their sleeves to troubleshoot the problem. When dealing with design problems, the easiest to work is when there is one consistent problem which can be solved with one solution. Intermittent problems are the next annoying. Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't, and so they're hard to solve. The hardest must be when multiple problems lead to the same failure. Even if you think you've solved the problem with one solution, there is still another problem to cause the same bad outcome. Initially, they thought that harmonic vibration caused middle fatigue along a weak area of the tail, which caused the failure. You can see metal fatigue in action yourself by bending a piece of coat hanger wire back and forth a few times, and then it snaps. Then they thought it was the failure of a bracket holding the mass balance for the elevator control. Mass balances are literally that, a mass of metal that counterbalances the controls in the slipstream. If it falls off, then the control can start to flutter rapidly in the high-speed air like a sheet of paper in a wind, leading to structural failure. They redesigned the mass balance bracket and strengthened the weak area of the tail with steel straps and later riveted fish plates, and eventually, in 1944, they redesigned the entire empennage, or the tail section. Imagine the frustration when, right near the end of the war, after all these modifications and fixes, the problem started up again. Turns out that a completely unrelated change to the landing gear mechanism in late 1944 could cause the undercarriage fairings to be pulled into the slipstream, in turn causing an uneven airflow to hit the elevators and rudder, resulting again in rear fuselage structural failure. It is thought that 23 pilots were killed due to tail failures during the typhoon's operational life. Another thing that required a lot of tinkering was the car door style access to the cockpit. Almost the first hundred examples of the typhoon had it, but it and the equipment and other stuff behind the pilot caused trouble and poor visibility. There were several interim tries at improving this, but it took until late 1943 to start using a clear, one-piece, sliding bubble canopy. This had slim framing and a cut-down rear dorsal fairing, giving an excellent 360-degree field of view for the pilot. So that's it, right? How many problems could this airplane have and not get tossed on the scrap heap? Well there was that finicky Sabre engine to deal with. Its sleeve valves tended to wear quickly, which would cause a spike in oil consumption. What made this problem even worse was the dusty conditions that would later be encountered in forward operating airfields. This abrasive dust was literally sandblasting the inside of the cylinders, causing engine failure after as little as three flights. Emergency dust filters were designed and sent out, but the first ones would be blown off like a mortar shell if the engine backfired. So another filter with an overpressure door was later fitted to prevent this problem. The Sabre did not like being started in the cold, 
which caused ground crews to have to start and ground run the engines every two hours in cold weather to keep the engine and its oil supply warm. Another problem was that the Typhoon looked a heck of a lot like the plane it was supposed to be killing, the FW-190. Resulting in friendly fire situations with Allied gunners and other pilots. The solution was to paint black and white stripes under the wings. Sound familiar? Yes, the idea, later known as invasion stripes, was spread to most Allied aircraft in time for D-Day. Gosh, with all those problems, was it even possible for the Typhoon to be successful? Well, yes. In late 1942 and early 1943, the Luftwaffe was employing FW-190s and other types as Jagd bombers, or fighter bombers. These intruders would sweep in low across the channel, hot and fast, and hit shipping and ports in southeast England. The RAF found itself almost powerless to stop these high-speed, low-altitude, below-the-radar attacks. As soon as RAF fighters were scrambled to intercept them, the intruders were already gone. Typhoons were called upon to counter this threat. Squadrons would have some of their typhoons on standing airborne patrols over the coast, with others sitting on the tarmac ready to take off within two minutes during the day. With practice, the typhoons began to shine in this role, knocking down 20 or so intruders in 42 and 43. With the newer Spitfires arriving on the scene, better able to take on the role of pure fighter and interceptor, the Typhoon was retasked to the role for which it would really be remembered. Ground attack. The powerful Sabre engine and the strong wing of the Typhoon allowed for it to haul extra fuel drop tanks, bombs, cannon shells and rockets into the air and then use them to rain hell upon ground targets. Although the weapon systems were able to handle both bombs and rockets, some squadrons specialized in one or the other, which simplified logistics and also allowed that squadron to become expert in delivering that particular type of weapon. The rockets certainly required skill and expertise. The RP-3 rockets, also known as 3-inch or 60-pound rockets, were completely unguided and there was no special site or system to launch them. The pilot would have to approach the target fully stabilized without slip or yaw and with a constant speed, all of which could throw off the aim. He would then use his standard reflector gun sight to eyeball the target, accounting for ballistic drop of the rockets, and then let fly. The fins at the back of the rocket were canted in order to spin-stabilize as the cordite rocket fuel flung the 3-inch tubes at between 1,200 and 750 feet per second, and on the nose was a 60-pound TNT RDX Amatol warhead. Typhoons could carry four rockets under each wing, and some were adapted to carry eight. It's a bit of a controversy as to how effective the rockets were individually. They were hard to aim, couldn't be corrected while in flight, and as soon as the attack started, the flung up dust and smoke would totally obscure the target area, making it even more difficult for subsequent typhoons to draw a bead on the target. But, just as it's silly to look at the sound of a single bassoon when listening to an orchestra, 
I think it's less important to think about the individual effect of a rocket than the combined effect of the entire ground attack system, which by the time of D-Day was becoming a terrifying juggernaut to the regular Wehrmacht grunt on the ground. Typhoons from 27 different squadrons would be stacked up behind the lines in what came to be known as the cab rank system. To my younger listeners, who get around by Uber, Taxicabs used to wait their turn to pick up riders in a line called a cab rank. It was the same with the typhoons. They would circle around until called up by radio-equipped RAF operators on the line to bring in their bombs, rockets, and cannon. To the German units on the ground facing this, it must have been hella demoralizing to have your position marked by a smoke shell and then have wave after wave of fighter bombers come in to just grind you down. What did it matter if the first salvo of 60-pound rockets missed? You knew that there was another coming right after. Many vehicle crews bailed out of their death traps and ran instead. Horst Weber, an SS Panzergrenadier serving with Kampfgruppe Knaust, wrote that We had four Tiger tanks and three Panther tanks. We were convinced that we would gain another victory here and that we would smash the enemy forces. But then typhoons dropped these rockets on our tanks and shot all seven to bits. And we cried. We could see two black dots in the sky, and these always meant rockets. Then the rockets would hit, and the tanks would burn. The soldiers would come out all burnt and screaming in pain. None other than General Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander, said, Open quotes. The chief credit in smashing the enemy's spearhead, however, must go to the rocket-firing Typhoon aircraft of the 2nd Tactical Air Force. The result of the strafing was that the enemy attack was effectively brought to a halt, and the threat was turned into a great victory. Typhoons were not just being used as a bludgeon, they were also being used as a scalpel to take out individual headquarters when intelligence was gleaned that there were high-value targets within. On the 24th of October 1944, typhoons hit a building in Dortrecht, where a meeting of senior officials of the German 15th Army was occurring. 32 high-ranking officers were killed, basically decapitating the leadership of the 15th Army. Operation Varsity, which was the Allied crossing of the Rhine River, employed 400 typhoons raining death from above on AA guns and other positions as gliders and paratroopers dropped in. Survivors You'd think that there would be more survivors of the typhoon. 3,317 of them were built, and they were operated by Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and of course the United Kingdom. They were held in very high esteem, especially for the G.I.s and Tommies and Canuck infantry who were able to call in these killer angels from behind to get them out of scrapes and soften up positions prior to getting up and attacking them from the ground. But only one complete Tiffy exists. Not to besmirch her reputation, but serial number MN235 has gotten around. It was originally at the National Air and Space Museum in the U.S., and then was sent to the RAF Museum in Hendon, North London for a time, 
and then headed back across the Atlantic to my own nearby aviation museum in Ottawa for a visit, and is now back at the RAF Museum in London. My own daughter Megan, during her school trip to the D-Day beaches, took a picture of the rocket-laden typhoon replica hanging from the ceiling at the Memorial de Caen, Normandy. She figured I'd be interested, and I guess my daughter knows me well. So why do so few exist? Well, one reason is that typhoons were quickly retired and their squadrons rapidly disbanded after VE Day. Why was this fully developed weapons system so quickly tossed in the dustbin? As Yoda said to Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, there is another. Hawker never gave up tinkering with and improving the Tiffy. There were a dizzying number of updates and eventually someone has to ask the philosophical question, after you've changed so much, when is it no longer a typhoon? At some point, they began calling the greatly evolved airplane a Typhoon II, and then it finally got its own name, the Tempest. I was originally going to lump both aircraft together, but I think this topic is rich enough to merit its own episode, which will be coming down the pipe at some point. I'm going to post some pictures of what we've been talking about today on the Patreon site, and these will be free to everyone. I encourage you to head on over there as I am winding down the Facebook page. It really bothers me that Facebook throttles my posts to you, only showing my stuff to a tiny fraction of you while demanding that I pay up to boost posts to everyone. On Patreon, I'm sure that what I post, you will see. Now, for those who have subscribed and chosen to become part of the Warbirds team on Patreon, there will be a bonus episode on the previously mentioned Hawker Tornado. I encourage you to join. For the monthly price of a single Starbucks, you basically get double the Warbirds. Thanks again to all who support the podcast, either via PayPal at WOWB17 or through Patreon. I appreciate it more than you know. Until next time.